Amen. Revelation chapter 2, beginning with verse 18. Let's dive right into the text. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. As for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants, to commit sexual immorality, and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death. Very uplifting, Jesus. And all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now I say to you, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden. But hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end to him, I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, and they shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels. And I also have received from my father, as I also have received from my father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Of the seven cities in the region of Asia Minor that Jesus is addressing, Thyatira, well frankly, was the least impressive. The city was located 35 miles southeast of Pergamos, constructed roughly 50 miles from the Aegean Sea. The area was mostly rural, was agriculturally focused. Uh, Recent archaeological digs have revealed that Thyatira was really... Nothing more than than a marketplace, than any type of real uh, metropolitan area. In fact, the only notable contribution that this city of Thyatira made to antiquity was the manufacturing of a very rare purple dye that was used in the scarlet clothing worn by the Romans. Beyond this, Thyatira was known for her powerful trade guilds. One historian writes, quote, Among the ancient ruins of the city, inscriptions have been found relating to the guild. Think of a guild as a union. The guild of dyers in the city. Indeed, more guilds are known in Thyatira than any other contemporary city in the Roman province of Asia. Inscriptions mention wool workers, linen workers, dyers, leather workers, tanners, potters, bakers, slave dealers, and bronze smiths. The only other biblical mention of Thyatira is found in Acts chapter 16. The Apostle Paul has landed in the city of Philippi, and since there was no synagogue in the city, as was his custom, on the Sabbath day, Paul instead goes down to the riverside where prayers were made. Once there, he stumbled across a group of women, Jewish women, who met every Saturday to pray and worship the Lord. Paul shared with them the gospel news, the good news of Jesus, and we're told a woman by the name of Lydia who worshipped God, heard what Paul was sharing, and the Lord opened her heart to heed the things that he was speaking. She gets saved, Lydia. Now, what makes that interesting is that Luke, the author of Acts, adds a detail that this woman, Lydia, was a seller of purple 
from the city of Thyatira. It's the only other mention of Thyatira in the Bible. As the tiniest of the cities, we can also reason that this church community was the smallest and least significant. While some believe maybe Lydia had a role in the formation of the church, the truth is we have no idea at all how the church began. No mention of the Apostle Paul uh, going to the area, no missionary journeys stumbling across that, that town. We don't know how the church began. In all likelihood, as uh, these churches of Asia Minor are reading this, this grand revelation, they would probably be a little taken back. Like, wait, there is a church in Thyatira? Like, it was that insignificant of a town that people were probably surprised Jesus would even take a moment to address this little church. It's also worth noting that historically we have no record of Caesar worship happening in Thyatira. We, we don't have any scriptural references of Christian persecution, trials, or some tribulation facing the church. Like unlike the others that we've seen thus far, the, the believers in Thyatira weren't experiencing outside opposition or forces. And yet what is amazing is that this tiny letter, like this tiny church, this insignificant church, ends up being Jesus' longest letter. It's a small church, but Jesus has more to say to the church of Thyatira than any of the others. Jesus is not a respecter of size. Now, addressing the substance of this letter in its literal presentation, it's clear the church in Thyatira had some serious problems that were deeply concerning to Jesus. We read through them. Yes, in verse 19, Jesus does commend them for their, their works, their service, their love, their faith, their patience. Jesus even adds that their work was increasing. As the church got older, he says the last of your works were more than the first. And yet the problem that Jesus has with this church was that she had allowed this self-proclaimed prophetess named Jezebel to come in to teach and seduce Jesus' servants to commit sexual immorality and idolatry by eating things sacrificed to idols, likely these two behaviors were associated with the mandatory social activities related, connected to the many trade guilds that were in Thyatira. To their detriment, this church had failed to obey one of Jesus' few but most pronounced warnings. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, Jesus told his church, he told them to beware of false prophets who would come in in sheep's clothing but inwardly were ravenous wolves. Now we don't know if Jesus was specifically naming this woman, like calling her out in front of everyone, that there was an actual woman named Jezebel. Or, or that in just using this infamous Old Testament name, Jezebel, that Jesus was trying to, to illustrate the depths of her depravity, her sin, her wickedness. There is, though, no reason that we should not take what Jesus is saying in the letter to be a literal rebuke of an actual woman running around this church doing immeasurable harm. In fact, it's interesting that when you study some of the original Greek manuscripts, this phrase that we have, that woman Jezebel, can be translated as, well, either your woman, Jezebel, or your wife, Jezebel. 
when you take into account that the letter is addressed to the angel of the church of Thyatira, or the pastor, in context, some believe that this evil woman may have, it, it may have been the pastor's wife. We don't know. Wouldn't be applicable to our church. Just need to get that out there. Now, regarding such people who deliberately lead God's children, and you need to realize you're God's child, bought, bought for by the blood of Jesus Christ. You're incredibly valuable to him. Concerning anyone that would lead one of God's precious children astray into sin. I mean, Jesus has a lot of really strong things to say to such a person. In fact, in Mark chapter 9, Jesus was clear that whoever would cause one of the little ones who believes in him to stumble, it would be better for that person, Jesus says, for a millstone to be hung around their neck and then thrown into the sea. Meek and mild Jesus. Well, this explains the strong language used in the letter we have to describe how he planned to, to deal with this lady. It's amazing, though, that according to verse 21, Jesus still graciously, look at it again, he gave her time. Jesus knew what was going on. He knew what this woman was doing. He knew the evil she was propagating. He took those things seriously, but he still, in just an act of grace, had given this woman time to repent of her sexual immorality. Apparently, this letter wouldn't be the first rebuke of this woman. She had been given time. God had addressed this already. That said, by the time this letter does arrive, and imagine, you know, this little church of Thyatira, we got a letter from Jesus opening it up, and then you're reading through it. Jezebel, Jesus says. And they all knew. They all, they all are just trying not to look. But imagine the reaction. I mean, just this, the weight of it. When Jesus says, because you haven't repented of your sin, I'm going to judge you. And then he gets specific. Verse 22, I will cast her into a sickbed. I will kill her children with death. Jesus says, regarding those who commit adultery with her, and again, people kind of shift in the pews at this point, they would face a great tribulation unless they repented of their deeds. Like There is no question the fact that Jesus, he took the actions of this woman very seriously and was prepared to deal with the problem quite decisively. While this church was on a crash course with what appeared to be inevitable, Jesus does single out the faithful, the remnant, who had not been led astray by this woman. For these folks, Jesus has a particular word of exhortation, verse 24. He says, Now to you, I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, I won't put any other burden on you, but just hold fast what you have till I come. The way that Jesus frames these instructions leaves us with the impression that the fate of this church had already been sealed. Like an unavoidable reckoning was on the horizon that would not be reversed. Regarding the few who had rejected the doctrine of Jezebel, who had therefore not known the depths of Satan, Jesus encourages them. He's just like, guys, a reckoning's coming. <laughs> hold fast. What you have, hold fast, endure until I arrive. That's important 
that we initially always look at these letters within a literal context of Jesus addressing an actual church located in an ancient city, this being Thyatira. But it's equally true that a greater understanding of what Jesus is articulating is discovered when you interpret the letter through the lens of a particular movement within church history. We, we gain a greater insight, a greater perspective. Now, before we do this, <laughs> before we do this, let me, let me kind of transition carefully by issuing two important disclosures. Because at some point you might get very mad at me based upon what church movement this letter addresses. And, and, and when you get mad at me, please come back to the two disclosures, all right? All right? <laughs> Agreement? Okay. First, the present tense of the letter indicates that the period of church history that this letter to Thyatira sought to address is still in existence today. We know this to be the case because Jesus' warning to the church presents two events that haven't happened yet. In verse 22, Jesus mentions great tribulation, the great tribulation, the greatest tribulation that has ever been or ever will be type of tribulation. That's what the Greek means. That hasn't happened yet. Aside from that, in verse 25, he cites what? His coming, which again, hasn't happened yet. I believe he's talking about the rapture of the church being the motivation for the faithful to hold fast. So first, Jesus is addressing a church that exists. Secondly, and again, it's very important, I say this up front, though the letter will speak to a period of history that we know as Roman Catholicism, the Roman Catholic Church. Please know, not every Roman Catholic is guilty of the things that Jesus is addressing in the letter. And again, that's important. You probably know Roman Catholics. It might apply to them. In fact, it's probably a plurality. But I can say with confidence that there are many wonderful, godly Christian brothers and sisters who are a part of the Roman Catholic Church, genuine Christ followers. My grandfather is a Roman Catholic, goes to Mass every week. He loves Jesus. He's completely wrong with his theology, but he loves Jesus. In fact, the letter substantiates this reality. So if you ever run across someone that's like, all Roman Catholics are going to hell, and you'll run across those, those type of people, going to hell. Take them to this letter. Because within the letter, again, addressing Roman Catholicism, like Jesus, he not only accuses this woman Jezebel of, of seducing who in the church? He calls them his servants. So there are his servants in this church, which speaks of a personal relationship. But aside from that, he also promises to place onto the faithful in the church who do not have this doctrine, no other burden except that they hold fast till he comes. So even within the letter, we have confirmation that there are his service, servants in their midst, and that there is a faithful remnant that need to hold fast. So that whole idea that Roman Catholics are all going to hell is hogwash because, well, this letter doesn't substantiate it. So those are my disclaimers. Let's move forward. Last Sunday, in our examination of the Church of Pergamos, and the Byzantine period of history that she represented, I noted how under Emperor Constantine and through the Edict of Milan, that the persecuted church had become a, well, a church of privilege. 
Sadly, while this church enjoyed the protection and the financial support of the state, again, the Church of Pergamos, over time, we see historically, the influence of the Roman emperor started to transition into more and more power and control. It was a partnership, but it quickly got out of balance. By 380 AD, the growing flirtation between the church and the state would ultimately lead to an unholy marriage. When the emperor, Theodosius, issued what's known as the Edict of Thessalonica, he ordered, quote, all subjects under the Roman Empire to possess the faith of the bishops of Rome and Alexandria. Christianity became the official religion of Rome. And this one moment, through this one edict, the church and the state became one. Everyone was required to be a Christian. You were not given an option. As a result, what we would call the Catholic or the universal church immediately became the Roman Catholic Church. I am part of the Catholic Church, so are you. The universal church. The church. The big C. Our little C church is very much a Protestant church. Not a Catholic. So the big C church became the big Roman Catholic Church. Everything under this one banner. This church was led, spearheaded, by the emperor, whoever sat on the throne, was in charge. And the power within the church resided again according to the Edict of Thessalonica, within the bishop of the church in Rome. Okay. Now the bishop of the church in Rome, over time, would become known by another name, the Pope. In Jesus' letter to Pergamos, it's evident the favor of the state had made the church, caused the church to become susceptible to institutional corruption, as well as moral theological compromises. But tragically, in this letter, it's apparent, yes, the church of Pergamos did not heed Jesus' warnings. And in fact, all of the trends Jesus was warning against continued on, unabated, and grew worse and worse and worse. In the substance of Jesus' letter to these believers in Thyatira, it's really shocking to see how far this church had fallen from her purpose. Like the bride of Christ had become a whore. If, if you take some time on your own to study the origins of the Roman Catholic Church, if you study this period, like it will not take you long to discover horrid details of extreme sexual immorality happening in the Roman Catholic Church, happening in the priesthood, as well as their blatant, overt idolatry. For sake of time, I'm going to forgo giving you specific examples other than to say that historically, because this state church was no longer a light unto the world, again, the bride of Christ becoming the whore, no longer a light, the world itself would plunge for about 1,200 years, again, no light, we call it the Dark Ages. That's what would happen. In viewing this letter as Jesus addressing the Roman Catholic Church, in addition to this church in Thyatira. I want to kind of go back now and re-examine the things that Jesus has commended her for within that context. So, so let's kind of do this again. Let's reverse new application. Verse 19. Jesus says, I know your works, love, service, faith, and patience. Like the truth of the matter is by and large the Roman Catholic Church has used her immense power 
privilege, and wealth to do incredible work throughout the entire world. Like, that should be commended, and Jesus commends her for it. The Catholic Church has been faithful to love people and demonstrate charity and serve their community. Jesus also points out at the end of verse 19, and I think it's really interesting, he says, as for your works, the last are more than the first. When you examine that statement in in light of history, beginning in 380 AD and continuing all the way up to the present day, the Roman Catholic Church has what? It has grown. It has increased in both influence and charity. Now, even in the Dark Ages, it was still the Roman Catholic Church that yielded the most notable advances in art and culture and education and medical research and science. And today, the Roman Catholic Church invests an enormous amount of money into schools and orphanages and higher learning and hospitals. Like you could argue, and I think this is true, Protestants should be rebuked for it, honestly, but the Roman Catholic Church is today the largest global charity. In just the United States alone, the Roman Catholic Church provides daily food services for around 7 million people. They give 2.6 million students education, whether it's in one of the 7,000 elementary schools or over 13,000 high schools that the Roman Catholic Church oversees. Like Before the pandemic, it's estimated that around 720,000 students were enrolled in some 230 Catholic colleges and universities. In America, there are 629 Catholic hospitals, which represents 12.6% of the entire national total. Today, one in six medical patients in the U.S. are assisted by the Catholic Church. That's to be commended. Like, to their credit, Catholic health services are present in all 50 states, providing acute care, hospice services, home health, assisted living, senior housing. The list could go on and on and on. It's really hard, and and, and people have tried, to pin down the exact amount of money the Roman Catholic Church spends every year in charity. But according to recent estimates by The Economist, the Roman Catholic Church spends roughly, this number will blow your mind, $170 billion around the world. Again, the world's largest charity. Like, it should come as no surprise, right, that Jesus would start off by commending this church for her work. And yet, in spite of all of the commendable things, Jesus really has a challenging and provocative criticism. Verse 20, look back. He says, nevertheless, in spite of all of those good things, he says, you allow, or in the tense, you're presently allowing. This is something that's happening right now. You're allowing that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality, to eat things sacrificed to idols. And then more specifically, in verse 22, Jesus will actually describe the end result of those things as this church committing what he views to be spiritual adultery against him. You know, the story (coughs) of this evil woman, Jezebel, is recorded, it, it can be found, in 1 Kings chapter 16 through 21, as well as in 2 Kings Uh, Chapter 9 actually records her death. Admittedly, Jezebel would have never been an Old Testament character if it hadn't also been for an unholy marriage that occurred between herself and the Hebrew king Ahab. Jezebel was not a Jew. And God had forbid his people from intermarrying the nations around them. But in an act of what? 
political expediency, King Ahab decides to take Jezebel, the daughter of the king of Sidon, as his wife. Again, political expediency. He disobeys God. You see, God knew the inherent dangers that would always surface when his people intermarried with these pagan nations who didn't share their same moral compass. The Apostle Paul, he would warn in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33, he says, don't be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. It's true, it's a lot easier to entice someone into sinful behavior than entice a sinner into godly behavior if you don't share the same moral compass. As it should be expected, it doesn't take long for Queen Jezebel to influence King Ahab. And she ended up leading God's people, as God warned would happen, into the worship of a wicked idol, the worship of Baal. In fact, during this time, Jezebel would actually act as a self-proclaimed prophetess, an apologist for this wicked deity. She would build high places of worship all throughout Israel, and she would persecute the saints of God, the true prophets of God, men like Elijah. The worship of Baal was fundamentally, at least in the eyes of God, idolatry. But the worship, and this is interesting, the worship of Baal necessitated two things. You see, to appease Baal, who was the weather god, and gain his favor, human works and human sacrifice were required. Like As just one example of this, in 1 Kings chapter 18, the prophet of Elijah has kind of had enough, so he challenges the prophets of Baal to a barbecue, a cook-off. The challenge, you guys build an altar, put a sacrifice on it. I'll build an altar, put a sacrifice on it. You guys can go first, you can pray and do your thing, and, and we'll just see which God, Baal or Jehovah, which God is actually real, based upon whether or not fire comes down from heaven and consumes the altar. And for the entire day, the prophets of Baal, and again, in their attempts to get Baal to send down fire or favor from heaven, they danced and they sang and they prayed and they cried aloud, all to no avail. So they began to cut themselves, self-mutilation, to appease Baal. In contrast, Elijah's like, I've had enough of this. And kind of to, to mock them, he takes... He, he digs a, a moat around the altar, fills it with water, and then they just, I mean, they just douse. I mean, they're just dumping buckets and buckets and buckets of water, you know, which that doesn't really work well with fire. And Elijah, all he does is he just prays. It's an amazing prayer. Fire from heaven consumes it, as well as the 400 and some odd prophets of Baal. The worship of Baal required work sacrifice like it was a works-based model which is why it's being brought up here but beyond that Baal, Baal worship incorporated the grotesque practices of, of literal human sacrifice you see when your works weren't enough greater sacrifices were demanded one historian notes Baal worship was indulgent with regard to sexual mysticism on the one hand 
but overly strict, harsh, and severe on the other hand with regard to aesthetic practices with occasional bouts of human sacrifice along the way. Because Jezebel exerted tremendous control through her marriage with Ahab, in turn, what happened? She led the entire nation, God's people, into sin. In 1 Kings 21, verse 25, we read that there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. It's not an accident, the word Baal. It means Lord or husband. You see, through her position, Jezebel was able to seduce God's wife, Israel, and do adultery. Well, in its context, we understand that Jesus, you know, he's addressing an actual woman running around the church. And the broader application concerning Roman Catholicism, by invoking this, this name of this wicked, evil woman, Jezebel, Jesus is he's doing something important for us. He is describing characteristics of the very system that was facilitating their spiritual adultery, just like Jezebel had. You see, like Jezebel, historically, we know that Roman Catholicism, how did it result? How did it come to be? Through an unholy marriage. An unholy marriage between God's church and the Roman state. You see, instead of relying on Jesus as her groom to care for her needs, to protect, to cherish, out of political expediency, the church climbed into bed with another man, the state. Not only did this union open up the church to powerfully corrosive influences, but moral compromise, concessions resulted. Sadly, once in power, this state-run Roman Catholic Church instituted a religious system based, like the worship of Baal, on human works and human sacrifice. Not only would anyone who challenged Catholic norms during this time period find themselves to be enemies of the state, many of them dying, but it was during this time that the good news of salvation by grace through faith was exchanged for a salvation that demanded personal works, increased piety, and procurements to regain sanctity. Like instead of Jesus' work on the cross being more than enough, Catholicism added to Christ's work on the cross a list of essential, you want to take a guess? Sacraments. Additionally, the sufficiency of one high priest named Jesus was substituted by the necessity of a human priesthood. And a stark example of idolatry, Mary, as well as many other saints, could now provide the same type of access to the throne room of heaven as Jesus Christ. The word of a pope now stood on par with the authority of God's word. Because of an unholy marriage between the church and the state, along with the various theological perversions that naturally manifested, and this letter... Jesus is declaring, he's finding Roman Catholicism to be guilty of the same evil of Jezebel. Only this time, with regards to his bride, not Israel, but the church. As Jesus has done with each of these letters, and the way he introduces himself, it's significant, it's significant. 
In the case of Thyatira, look again at verse 18. Jesus begins, he says, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. Because his rebuke of this church will be so incredibly harsh and forward, it's not an accident that before Jesus said anything, right? He wants them to remember who it was doing the speaking. He says, these things you're about to hear come from whom? The Son of God. This is the only time in the entire book of Revelation that Jesus is referred to with this title, the Son of God. To be the Son of doesn't mean that you're you know, the, the biological kin of. It means to be of the same nature. That's what the word means in the Greek. To be the son of something is that I am of the same nature as that thing. The son of God I, means I am God. So he makes that clear. You know, in chapter 1, he revealed himself, Jesus, as the son of man. And he did that to, to stress his relatability. But now this phrase, the son of God emphasizes his divinity regarding this church mired in idolatry and in the act of committing spiritual adultery jesus wants them to know who they're cheating on you're cheating on god aside from this jesus also reveals himself look again to them as the one having eyes like a flame of fire and feet like fine brass Like This church needed to see the fire in Jesus' eyes. Yes, he was passionate for them. But he was also perceptive about them. Again, before he says anything to them, Jesus wants this church to know up front that his judgments were sure, feet like fine brass, but were also completely righteous because he was perceptive. With his person in mind and the wickedness percolating throughout this church as our context, <laughs> we, we shouldn't be surprised that Jesus drops the hammer, right? In verse 21. Concerning the system that we know as Roman Catholicism, Jesus says, I have given her time to repent of her sexual immorality, but she hasn't. So I will cast her into a sick bed, and those who commit adultery into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds, I will kill her children with death. And all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts. I will give to each one of you according to your works. Let's unpack that. It's a provocative thought. But while Jesus has given this Roman Catholic church ample time to repent. And you could probably say that that's true, right? It's been some time since 380 AD. But Jesus here, he's affirming that this system was never going to change. That it wouldn't. She would never change her ways. And because of that reality, he explains what the consequences were going to be. Verse 22, I will cast her into a sickbed. And that day, a sickbed was a big couch that had poles on each end in which the dying were carried. Like the phrase, will cast. Again, future tense. It's passive, which really just means to let go of a thing or to allow a thing to happen. Like, understand, Jesus is not saying that he was going to strike her with a sickness. But instead, that the sickness she would be experiencing would be the natural byproduct of her sin and system. Like, Jesus is saying, there's a point in time when I'm going to let go and just allow you to experience the natural consequences 
of your poor decisions. He, he adds, I will cast her into great tribulation. Again, in the context of this being the Roman Catholic Church, on account of her spiritual adultery, Jesus is saying that he would allow her to experience great tribulation. And as mentioned in the Greek, this phrase great tribulation implies the greatest of all tribulation with regard to rank. It's my opinion, and there's a few different ways you can, you can read this, but I believe that Jesus is telling the Roman Catholic Church he no longer views her as his bride because of her actions. Therefore, she will not be raptured and end up being left behind to experience, again, great tribulation, adding, unless you repent of your deeds. Verse 23, he says, I will kill her children with death. And that's harsh. It's harsh. But, but you know, it's interesting that Jesus says what? He says, her children. Her children. That's interesting, right? Like, Jesus here is obfuscating all parental responsibility. They're not my kids. They're your kids. They're the kids produced through what you're doing, not through my interactions. They're your kids. Jesus doesn't consider those born through this religious system as being part of his family. And again, I come back to the disclaimer that doesn't apply to all Roman Catholics because there are Christians, but a lot of them. He says they are not his children. He describes them as being the bastard offspring of an adulterous affair. The phrase, I will kill, comes across brass. But in the original language, all it means is it's not active. It's, it's kind of an allowance. It's to deprive of life. That's what it means. It's not to, to murder. It's just to deprive of life, and so that's what results. And in context, we, we understand Jesus is referring to a spiritual death. To spiritual context. He will remove spiritual life. Concerning this judgment, Jesus says, I will give to each one according to your works. Like, keep in mind the judgment of God is always measured according to your works. Like, it's always proportional. God's judgment is always just. Hell might be the destination, as it's impossible for a sinner to provide permanent atonement for his sin but the depths of one's depravity on earth the context of their works and service will be factored in by a just God you will receive a judgment that's true but it will be measured according to your works I could teach a whole Bible study on that idea alone but I want you to know this morning that religious works only enable a person to climb the moral ladder of a hell that never reaches into heaven. Again, it's important to point out in the context of this heavy message that not everyone in Roman Catholicism is receiving the same criticism or warning. I reiterate verse 24, now to the rest, to some, but to the rest, as many as do not have this doctrine, he says, I won't put any other burden, hold fast what you have. He affirms that Roman Catholicism, Jesus says, it might be institutionally corrupt, it might be guilty of spiritual adultery, but there is still a faithful remnant in her midst. And it's to these people, Jesus encourages them, hold fast. It's like, you're not going to rip this from my dead lifeless face. It's like, grip it, hold it, hold fast with all you got. And then he promises to those who overcome this system of spiritual sin, of immorality. He says, to those who overcome, to those who keep my works until the end. 
Well, I will give you power over the nations. And then he says the morning star. What's the morning star? Well, the book of Revelation will tell us what the morning star is. In chapter 22, verse 16, it is Jesus. Jesus describes himself as the morning star. In light of this difficult message presented in this letter, like we do need to take some time and address what Jesus is saying to us. What he's saying to our church, and by extension, the church. We also should talk about what he wants each of us to take from the letter personally. He who has an ear, so this is addressed to people, individuals, as well as to churches with a plurality. Here's some thoughts, some takeaways from this this hard letter. First, not everyone who thinks they're a Christian is actually a Christian. Like the stark and challenging reality is that Thyatira presents for us a church filled with people who while doing all kinds of wonderful things in the name of Christ were in actuality self-deceivers. You know, in line with this idea, Jesus warns in Matthew 7, beginning with verse 21, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. This is Jesus. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day of the judgment, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Note, the one criteria of heaven is not what you do, but who you know. Depart, not because you didn't do these things, but depart because I don't know you. I don't have a relationship with you. You're doing a lot of things, but I don't actually care about what you're doing. Like, accomplishments won't be the criteria of heaven. It's a relationship with Jesus that's the criteria of heaven. While doing Christian works may foster a perception of being a Christian. You might look like you're a Christian, but that doesn't make you. Doing Christian things doesn't make you a Christian any more than walking around on all fours or eating out of a bowl or drinking from the toilet or sleeping on the floor or barking at the moon makes you a dog. You can sleep in the garage that doesn't make you a car. Just because you claim to be a Christian and you do Christian things doesn't mean you have a relationship with Jesus. Be careful. Secondly, the church must always resist any other groom but Jesus. As the church, we find ourselves living in interesting days. And it's so easy in the presence of such uncertainty to see a party or a politician or a political action network, as being the church's grand defender and protector. We must reject that. Christian, as the bride of Christ, we have but one lover, one protector, one provider. We have but one husband. Never forget the lessons of history. When the church gets into bed with the state, her power is zapped, And the world plunges into darkness. Finally, any religious system that substitutes faith and Jesus' work on the cross for one based in our works is considered by Jesus to be a form of spiritual adultery. That's the big takeaway from this lesson, from this letter. Like it can't be understated. The way in which Jesus views 
this religious system we call Roman Catholicism. He calls her that woman Jezebel. Jesus sees that system as a competing groom attempting to woo away the affection of his bride. Friend, Jesus sees any religious system beyond Catholicism by, by which it creates this mechanism for Christians to appease God. Like any religious system that gets you to try to appease God or earn His favor or maintain His favor, His blessing through your works, any system that says what you do matters with God's favor as opposed to the receiving and enjoying of His favor. When we substitute grace for works, human sacrifice, Jesus sees those things as facilitating an affair. Like, you need nothing more than me. That's what Jesus says. Nothing else. Though Jesus references the moral failings of this church when he mentions their sexual immorality and idolatry, it's interesting to me the counsel that Jesus provides at the end of the letter. While Jesus initially commended this church for their works, notice he exhorts the faithful to do what? To keep his works until the end. Like in the Greek, this word keep, it, it doesn't mean what you think it means. It doesn't mean like to obey as in a command or a directive. The word keep in the Greek, it means to guard something that's, that's worth guarding, something worth cherishing, something of importance. Now, while it's true that sin separates fallen humanity from his maker, I'm going to say something a little controversial, but sin, it does not separate a Christian from God. I know, I know that sounds odd, but the Apostle Paul even attests in Romans 8.39, he says, nothing shall be able to separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, what makes sin and the life of a Christian alarming is not that it separates that person from God. Again, the wages of your sin have been satisfied by the blood of Christ permanently reconciling you with your Creator. Instead, what makes sin in your life so alarming, it's not that the sin separates you from God, it's that the sin reveals a separation from God is already happening. You see, in the context of this church and their spiritual adultery, of their, of their spiritual adultery, it's why Jesus brings up the idea of, of, of idolatry. All human behavior is the manifestation of an inward cause. Like meaning spiritual adultery against Jesus doesn't occur in a void or a vacuum. Like in the, in the physical realm. Like adultery. Where does adultery come from? Like people don't commit adultery just overnight on a whim. It's the manifestation of other things that have been going on for years. Problems within a marriage, a spouse whose interest has waned. Like, it's why you very rarely see adultery committed on a honeymoon. Right? It's something that manifests with time. Like, think of it this way. Sinful behaviors do not separate a believer from God any more than righteous works draw a believer any closer. Like instead, sin and the life of a believer reveals that a dangerous separation from God is currently underway. Outward behaviors are always a manifestation of an inward causation. 
let, let me illustrate this point. Like contrary to the conventional opinions, living in sexual sin doesn't create a distance in your relationship with God. Instead, sexual sin is the evidence a distance in your relationship with God has already developed. Like the flip side's true. Think of it. Purity and holy living don't draw you closer to God. Instead, purity and holy living are the evidence, the outward evidence, that you're enjoying an intimate relationship with God. Inward causation manifests in outward action. Outward action only serves to reveal inward motivations. Like, this is why this is important. We'll close with this. Like seeing sin as a symptom and not the problem has a profound implication for how you then seek to remedy the problem. Like, again, it's a truth that when you see outward sin as the problem, what will you immediately seek? Outward works to be the solution. But when you see sin correctly as being a symptom of an internal separation of my relationship with the Lord, that there's something going on in my heart, the solution isn't outside works, but what? A return to Jesus. To dive back into that relationship with the Lord. To come back to the basis of that relationship. Not anything I've ever done, but all He's done for me. Grace and grace and grace. That's the solution to sin. This is why Jesus says, I will put on to you no other burden." Just hold fast till I come. Christian, when your heart wanders, it should be his works that draw you back to him. What he's done for you. Like never forget, what Jesus has done for you matters way more than anything you do for him. When we were a mess, when you were a mess, Jesus loved you, didn't he? And he came and he picked you up and he cleaned you off. He made you white as snow. He loved you when you were unlovable. That was his work. And when you think about that, when your heart wanders, oh, you come back to it. He's made me his bride. Why would I flirt with another? Why would I seek to try to earn something he has so blessedly given me he who has an ear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches so father lord we thank you for that heavy word and what it says to us in jesus name